Hallelujah. Father, as we look at the anticipation of history recorded in the pages of your scripture, creation itself is groaning and crying out due to the fallenness of sin, for that which would come and only one, by only one means, redemption, through the incarnation of Christ, who would begin the entire scope of his work to set everything in accordance with its original intent, as he buys it back at the cost of his blood from the destruction that it deserved in sin. And this was true of our souls. We were once lost and dead in our trespasses and sins, but at that appointed time, our Savior Jesus Christ took on flesh, was born of a woman, and took upon himself in his humanity not only our experience, but also our sin, took it all the way to Calvary and endured the price, the penalty that we deserved. And because of this, we are redeemed, regenerate, made new. We have been born again. The old is gone, the new has come. And even the creation, Lord, as it awaits the fullness of the sons of glory, has a day of redemption on the horizon. When the new heavens and new earth are finally a reality, when Jesus Christ and all that he died to purchase manifests his kingdom and rule in consummate power and authority. This is the resurrection we sang of today. This is the resurrection we've experienced in our own personal salvation. This is the resurrection we witness in history in the pages of Scripture, where the grave proved no match for our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord, not only over our sin and history, but over the grave, death, and Satan itself. And for this reason, we gather in this place to celebrate the power of resurrection vested in one alone, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. As we open the pages of Scripture and see the documentation, the incredible prophecy, everything that you've laid out from ages past, fulfilled in time, and continue to manifest in your glory, Lord, I pray that our hearts would sing with more reasons to give you honor and praise for what you have done. Our minds would more deeply appreciate and understand the great lengths that you went to save us sinners undeserving. And I pray, Lord, that our proclamation would be bold, clear, and truthful, and authoritative, echoing the powerful word as we go forth in our own testimony to shed the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ by reflection as we testify to his power to save in our words and in our deeds. May this be the fruit of our service today by the power of the Holy Spirit, alive and well, and moving even in our lives to accomplish the will of the Father paid for by the cost of Jesus Christ, His Son. Thank you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning, we have the honor and privilege to open up the Scriptures by turning to Psalm 118. Would you turn there in your Scriptures with me? In a moment, we'll stand for the reading of God's Holy Word. This morning, our worship text earlier, Joel read for us 1 Peter 2, 4 through 9, which is a citation of a verse or two in our text today. It's not the only one in the New Testament. Psalm 118 is cited, it's referenced multiple times. Why? Because it's one of those important and pivotal records in Scripture which ties together redemptive themes from prophecy past to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Hence, Psalm 118 is multi-layered. It's extremely beautiful, it's powerful, it's significant, it's complex, and it can be understood in simplicity as well. Therefore, the aim of my message this morning is to feature the multi-layered power and beauty of this song, Psalm 118, to feature the multi-layered power and beauty of Psalm 118. The title of this morning's message is Hallel Crescendo, 
Hallel means praise. As we've uh, discovered in this set of six psalms, the Hallel Psalms 113 through 118, each record in their distinctive way a fitting anthem to celebrate, to commemorate, to remember and proclaim the Lord's deliverance, especially from the powers that be in Egypt and ultimately from the powers that be in our own sin. This, this final in the set of six songs of Hallel or praise or Egyptian Hallel songs is something of a climax, something of building to a crescendo, hence the title of Psalm 118 message this morning, Hallel Crescendo. With that introduction, would you stand once again out of reverence for God's Word today? And let us hear in our ears the testimony of the eternal Word. This is Psalm 118, the entire chapter, verses 1 through 29. Hear now the Holy Scriptures. O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called to the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. Verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Many of these songs, which include this phrase, I know you're familiar with because we've read it so many times in our psalm series. For his steadfast love endures forever. Many of the songs that, it, that include this phrase are written in a response format. So saints, let's open this morning by answering uh, me by uh, uh, stating those words. In other words, I'm going to say, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And you loudly answer for his steadfast love endures forever. Are we ready? 
Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good for His... Very good. The Hallel Crescendo. A praise to God. This summer marks 10 years of preaching in the Psalms here at Providence once a month. I was looking back in my records, and it occurred to me I need to give God the glory for His faithfulness and His kindness towards us in giving us a decade of preaching the glories of the Psalms, which began for us in June 2011. And today, as our series has commenced through the years, we open Psalm 118. Praise the Lord for His grace, hopefully deepening our appreciation and value of these songs one at a time as we have marched through them over the years. I'm thankful that the book is as long as it is because truly it is rich in its content and never wanes in its glory and power, and today is a great example. This Psalm 118 is singular in a number of ways. That means it stands out. It's awesome. It's special. How is it special, you might ask? Well, it's special even beyond its standalone beauty and authority. It stands alone as an example of a worship song in awesome ways. But in addition to that, think of the following contexts. It appears in the canon after Psalm 117, which was the shortest song in the Bible. Psalm, Psalm 117, praise the Lord all nations, extol him all peoples. We identified Psalm 117 as an international call to worship. As a set, Psalm 118 in context thus serves to declare the judicial consequences for nations who refuse to bow before the Lord, refuse to heed the call to worship in Psalm 117. Though they surround the Lord, take issue with Him, refuse to bow before Him, do not heed the call to worship, nevertheless, in God's sovereignty through His anointed Son, they are indeed cut off. Thus Psalm 117 and Psalm 118 serve well as a set. Psalm 118 serves, furthermore, as a fitting worship anthem for victorious kings. A worship anthem, a song to sing, to commemorate and to remember a victorious campaign where the people of God prayed and God gave them the victory over their enemies. Can you hear this song on the lips of David, having defeated all his foes? Can you hear him sing? They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. That was certainly his heart, whether he wrote these words or sang them or not. Nevertheless, what a fitting song for a victorious conqueror. One can also imagine a memorial occasion like the dedication or rebuilding of the temple, where the theme, the steadfast love of the Lord, is featured in these events. These events recorded throughout Scripture, including in Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 and following, the people worship the Lord, glorify Him, for His steadfast love was great, and it was evident in His grace, allowing them to reconstruct, or in Solomon's case, construct in the first place, the temple, the place of God's meeting with man. His steadfast love endures forever is such a familiar phrase, it might as well be the national anthem of Israel. What is the national anthem of Israel, you might ask? I think a good answer is this. We'll give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. It is a refrain, a chorus, a song that is repeated over and over again, commemorating the most high, holy, incredible, awesome of truths. Let's go further and recognize that Psalm 118 serves as a processional song. That means a song that accompanies a direction, a liturgy, an activity, an event, moving from some place to another. 
In this sense, Psalm 118 has a movement to it. The often repeated phrases furthermore serve, serve well for congregational participation and response, even as we gave a short example of that by repeating together, His steadfast love endures forever. Yet we continue, Psalm 118 is singular for more ways still. It is a prophetic and messianic song tying redemptive purposes to God, to get, of God together across the centuries. And as such, it is cited frequently in the New Testament, in New Testament context, by my count, at least 10 times. Six of these references are to Jesus our Lord and the fact that He is the chief cornerstone of all history and our faith. He is the stone that the builders rejected, yet became against the expectations of the faithless and the godless. In fact, the foundation stone, the chief reference point, the bedrock, the cornerstone of all the purposes of God. Psalm 118 follows in a series of related songs as we've identified them, the Hallel Psalms. It follows in particularly singular ways. It is the capstone of, a six so of these six songs written and sung to commemorate the delivering power of God over Israel's greatest enemies. And incidentally, it echoes, it reprises the themes of the previous five psalms in order. And then it closes with a final note of triumph. And you might recognize that note of triumph. These words should sound familiar to you. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yes, a triumphal procession was the occasion, no doubt historically, for Psalm 118, but prophetically, another triumphal procession would occur in the future. We know it as a triumphal entry where these very words are sung by those, the welcoming throngs who worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as He enters Jerusalem to accomplish His great work of redemption. Psalm 118 finally is most likely the very last song that our Lord Jesus sang with his disciples before taking the weight of our sins upon the cross of Calvary. Matthew 26, 30 says, when the disciples were gathered in the upper room and had sung a song, Jesus left from that place to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And what would that song set be that they were singing? What would an example of the song most likely be? Well, certainly Psalm 118, why? Because it was Passover. And Passover included in its liturgy the six songs that we've been studying and it certainly is capstone Psalm 118. Perhaps the last words Jesus sung with his disciples are the very words we are hearing and studying today. Awesome. Let me give you a heading for three major points. Yahweh's steadfast love proclaimed in the following ways. Yahweh the Lord, his steadfast love is proclaimed in strength, in song, and in salvation. It's a very simple outline, but don't worry, it'll get more complex. Verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song and has become my salvation. I submit you can take those three categories, strength, song, and salvation, and you can certainly organize these 29 verses around those three. But there's further detail and themes as well. Under strength, there's ultimate deliverance that's featured. And in this category or in this section, verses 1 through 13 record or reprise, that means they state again, they echo, elements or themes from Psalm 113 and Psalm 114. Second major point in song, a related idea further developed evident sovereignty. The Lord has displayed His glory. His sovereignty is evident. And under this heading, we find Psalm 115 and 116 reprised. 
And then finally, third category, salvation. Yahweh's steadfast love is proclaimed in salvation. And here we have the glorious messianic vindication. That is the triumph of the Messiah in verses 22 through 29. And here, Psalm 117 is reprised. Psalm 118 is reiterated itself in its own theme. And the prophecy of its fulfillment uh, looks forward to the coming of Jesus Christ in the triumphal entry. This song is incredible. Now, what is the value of understanding these intricate connections? Let me give you just one. This is by way of application. A book I recently learned the title of is called Hidden in Plain View. The author is a lady named Lydia McGrew. I've heard an interview with her and her husband. Both are biblical scholars. And they coined this phrase, coincidences are designed, I'm sorry, undesigned coincidences. And they point out a number of places in the Gospel and Acts that they call undesigned coincidences. And what they mean by undesigned is unintentionally to the human author. And uh, that is designed by God, by the Holy Spirit, the divine author, but things that the human author could not have fully known or realized in their entirety. These are powerful evidences to the Spirit-inspired nature of Holy Scripture. And a lot of what we'll cover today with depth and layer of Psalm 118, even summarizing the themes of the five songs that went before it, that preceded it, could well fall into that category of undesigned coincidence. In other words, unbeknownst to its human author, likely the Holy Spirit, evidence of his God-breathed inspiration of the human author is, in, is uh, here and evident in the intricacies and beauty and power of the Scripture. This is a powerful testimony to the uniqueness of the Holy Word of God. This week I was listening to someone who was doubting the Trinity. I just don't see it in the Bible, he said. And then he got on in an interaction with some Muslims on an you know, internet talk show. And they began to muse how, in fact, Jesus seemed to claim not to be God. They turned to Matthew 21, where a rich young ruler approaches Jesus and says, you know, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? So many words, and Jesus is a good teacher, you know, and Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Now, initially, at first read, you might take that as evidence of Jesus saying he was not God. But think about it. According to that logic, you must also assume that Jesus was not good. If only Jesus, or if only God is good. Is that the case? Well, no one on that show wanted to admit that. What was happening there was a short-sighted read of the Scripture. What they failed to realize is when people asked Jesus questions, almost in every case, he would reset the conversation to question their premise. That's exactly what he did. In other words, someone was coming to Jesus who has the authority of, fully God, of being fully God and fully man. And they, assumed, they presumed to set the terms of the interaction by the tone and the question, the approach and the assumptions in which they approach the Lord. And isn't it just like God to shut them up by a question of his own, to question the premise of their question, to reset the tone of the exchange and to underscore his own authority? I give you that example to show that what the scriptures contain in their depth and in their truth is often missed by a cursory, always, I would say, missed at a cursory glance. But the deeper you look into the understanding and the interconnectedness and the beautiful things like undesigned coincidences in Scripture, the more power 
the more beauty, the more glory you find in this absolutely unique, singular, powerful document, which is God's holy word. I just wanted to give you that because I believe deep study of Scripture, as far as we're able, has powerful ability to reinforce your own faith and to testify to the power of God. And so Psalm 118 testifies to the power and the authority of God in its own beauty and intricacy and, if you will, undesigned coincidences. Point number one, Yahweh's steadfast love is proclaimed in strength, ultimate deliverance. In 1 through 13, we have words like this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, verse 1, call to worship again, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Who ought to praise? Verses 2 through 4 give us those three categories we've seen already in Psalm 115. The people, the priests, and even the proselytes, those converted from other religions. Let Israel say His steadfast love endures forever, the people. Let the house of Aaron say, the priests, His steadfast love endures forever, And then now, a universal statement, let those who fear the Lord, God's people from every tribe and tongue, God's people who heed the worship or the call, universal, international call to worship of all nations, all peoples, praise Him and extol Him in Psalm 117, are called again in Psalm 118, indeed, to worship the Lord. Why? For His steadfast love endures forever. These are the poetic elements that introduce Psalm 118. This refrain that is the theme, if you will, of the Old Testament scriptures, it's the gospel recorded in the Old Covenant, the steadfast, the said love of the Lord. It opens Psalm 118 and it closes the same chapter, the song. This is the Hallel crescendo in its bookends or brackets. Again, verse 29, I'll give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. From the beginning to the end, or like another Hallel Psalm says, from the rising of the sun to the setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. From the opening refrain in invocation to the closing benediction, the name of the Lord and His steadfast love is a worthy theme of our praise. These are the poetic elements that introduce the Hallel crescendo. This is to be a unanimous confession. That is, everybody is to praise with one voice, which is the title of one of the Hallel sermons we preached already, with one voice and in one accord. And what is that voice to confess? His steadfast love endures forever. Now, this is a theme that has preceded Psalm 118 and Psalm 113. So if you turn back, let us see some parallels. Again, a thematic reprise. Psalm 113, 1, praise the Lord, Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Uh, Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. You see, once again, a call to worship, a unanimous confession is sought and proclaimed and called for, commanded. And then this metaphor of scope in verse 3, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. That's the collective call, and then it moves to particular instance. It says in verse 7, He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to sit them with princes, with the princes of His people. He gives the barren woman a home, makes her the joyous mother of children. You connect the two ideas, and you might ask yourself, how is the steadfast love of the Lord evident? Psalm 113 answers in the Hallel set by saying, The steadfast love of the Lord is such that it lifts the poor from the dust. His steadfast love lifts the needy from the ash heap. And His steadfast love makes the barren woman, gives her children, makes her the joyous mother of children. So from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, 
and from all peoples on all nations, the house of Aaron, and among the, all, all the people of Israel, indeed all who fear him from every tribe and tongue, his steadfast love endures forever. And thus, the theme of Psalm 113 is reprised in the first few verses of Psalm 118, calling for a unanimous confession among all who confess and testify, the poor, the needy, and the barren, those who have experienced the saving work of Jesus Christ across this globe to raise their voice in one accord and to praise him for his great salvation. The second major point in this section, underneath strength and ultimate deliverance, is that salvation has come in spite of suffering and salvation has come through suffering. We see this as the words continue in verse 5. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. This is that individual element. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? He goes on to say, setting up a contrast for refuge and safety, so it is better to take refuge in the Lord, verse 8, than to trust in man. Verse 9, in a parallel way, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And then again, salvation from suffering and through suffering. Verse 11, they surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. Here again in these verses 10 through 13, we have a record in poetic form of the formidable enemies of the people of God and of the Son of God, if you will, the appointed leader. The powers of the ages appear overwhelming at first, how does he describe this? Like a swarm of bees. Hey, kids, you ever seen a gigantic bee's nest hanging on a tree or under the eave of a house? Who's seen a gigantic bee's nest? Uh, Judah, what's tempting to do when you see that bee's nest? Yeah, throw a, giant, a baseball at it, right? Has anyone done that? Boys, have you made that foolish decision in your life? What happened? Let's say you were just feet away. Let's say instead of throwing a baseball, you took a baseball bat to that gigantic hornet's nest in the middle of the day. Good idea or bad idea? What's going to happen, kids? Yeah, they will surround you, won't they? So this is what our author felt like. They surrounded me. The enemies surrounded him like bees. And when the swarm of bees is stinging you too many times to count in seconds and surrounding you uh, in this event, you can uh, see the metaphor and how he's describing this sense of claustrophobic, absolute peril. He's, he goes on to add to this picture in 12b, they went out like a fire among thorns. Uh, the other day I was driving home from work and I saw a little fire in the ditch. And I drove a little farther and yet another fire about maybe uh, 10 yards across. And I think I counted four or five of these spot fires. And uh, the fire department, I called a number of the fire department, went out and put them out. Why were those fires started? Well, um, best as anyone can figure, maybe a trailer, you know, with its brakes out or something was creating a few sparks. But they were starting these fires over and over again along the way, Highway 6. Why were those fires started? Well, because of it's been so dry. When you have a drought, when you have thorns, a lot of surface area, tangled tinder, and that kindling birch bark, and you set a spark to it, what's going to happen? That fire spreads. A little bit of wind, a bellows, touches that tinder, and pretty soon it's off to the races with a raging forest fire. 
And these were the conditions of the enemies that surrounded our author. And so he felt like he was caught up, or that he was on the brink of being overcome, conquered, and falling, surrounded like bees and in the thick of a forest fire, and on every side, and in spite of this, all the nations, the powers that be, the principalities that rule this world in the short term or would appear so, nevertheless, they prove no match in the end. He says multiple times, I cut them off. I cut them off. I cut them off. Are there any other themes in the Hallel which speak of uh, salvation through suffering in spite of enemies? Yes, Psalm 114. We find this is a thematic reprise. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of a strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled, Jordan turned back, the mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. And it goes on to display in this poetic form the spectacular, decisive, miraculous, divine intervention of Yahweh, saving a slave people from the most formidable tyranny on earth at the time, as we've mentioned often, namely the Egyptians under Pharaoh. Moses, an unlikely leader, uh, gets together his ragtag band and through his ministry declares the glories of Yahweh over the oppressor when plagues tenfold visit them and miracles attend their way on their journey to the promised land. Were there times when God's people felt surrounded in those 400 years? Yeah, virtually every waking moment their back-breaking slavery and this oppressive regime. Israel went out from Egypt, however, the house of Jacob from a people of a strange language, and they were delivered against all odds and against um, uh, enemies that surrounded them on every side that certainly would have felt like a swarm of bees and that fire among them like a tinder, uh, like a raging forest fire created by uh, thorny tinder and so forth. Nevertheless, Salvation was accomplished to the glory of God in spite of this suffering. That is, the people of God, under their appointed leader, were nevertheless triumphant. Just like Jesus in his earthly ministry, though he was surrounded by the powers of the earth, religious, Pharisees and Sadducees, political, Pilate, Herod, etc. And the testimony of the early church acknowledged this in their prayers as actually the sovereign hand of God appointing all these enemies for this particular time so he could show his glory when Jesus Christ defeated them all. And did he defeat Herod? Did he defeat Pilate? Did he defeat the Pharisees and Sadducees? Yes, and more. He defeated death, the grave, and our sin itself in his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Thus, it's prefigured in the Psalms 114, 118, the work of Jesus Christ, the Moses to come, who delivered us from the suffering and the difficulty and the surrounding enemies of our sin, even the greatest and last enemy, death. Thus we have this theme of salvation from suffering, from oppression, and through suffering, the suffering of the appointed one unto our deliverance. So that's point number one. Yahweh's steadfast love proclaimed in strength. And that strength is shown in ultimate deliverance. That ultimate deliverance ought to receive or ought to be commemorated by the unanimous confession of the people of God across the world and across the ages. And this deliverance came by way of salvation through suffering from our own oppression and sin and so on. Major point number two. 
Yahweh's steadfast love proclaimed in song. And this idea of song is accompanied by evident sovereignty, the obvious testimony of the Lord's greatness. Verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Furthermore, in the category or the theme of song, we sing this here at the church, don't we, saints? Psalm 118, a version of it is among our worship songs. In verse 15, glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Here we see a reason, occasion, a theme for an enduring song. The songs of Scripture, 150 psalms, have endured the test of time. Will the Billboard Top 100 that you hear on the radio endure the test of time? <laughs> Absolutely not. Have you ever gone back and listened to a big hit from the 80s and thought to yourself, what in the world was our culture thinking? You see, that's the difference between the music that is inspired by godly themes and music that's inspired by worldly themes. It proves worldly-themed art proves absurd and stupid over time. Sure, it can grab the attention and stir the affections in a moment, but it does not survive the test of history. Not so with God's songs. 150 of them are celebrated, recorded, and sung, beloved, and read as devotional material and as an authoritative proclamation of truths, as a documentation of the works of God, not only through the history past, but now and until Christ returns and on into glory forever. The Psalms are enduring in their quality. Why is this? Well, it's because the best songs are inspired by themes of timeless memorial, themes worth remembering forever. The best songs serve, furthermore, to preserve these themes. So there's sort of a reciprocal relationship. You can see this in some of the songs that have survived through the ages. Why have they survived? Because they were inspired by themes worthy of timeless memorial, and there's a purpose to a song. It actually helps us to remember and preserve those themes themselves. And this is why Psalm 118 is so powerful, because it is centered around the most important themes that in all of history, the salvation of man and God's purposes and works to accomplish it. And it serves the purpose of writing on our souls the beauty of salvation as we remember and sing it, even as we do here in our congregation. Now, this evident sovereignty, the, these themes worthy of song are recognized by the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Who testifies to this truth? Well, this is a glad song, an example of one that is in the tent, in the homes, among the dwelling, among the inhabitants of the righteous. The righteous confess that the right hand of the Lord exalts, that it does valiantly. Furthermore, the righteous confess that they shall not die. They've gained eternal life through their conquering a, triumph, a triumphant Savior. They recount the deeds of the Lord, recognizing that He has disciplined them, but he has not given them over to death, and thus the gates of worship are open to them. Open to me the gates of, the, of righteousness, that I may enter through them. And it stands to reason, this is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it, that the righteous gates are only open to the righteous. Who are the righteous? They're the ones who have been cleansed from their sins, because as we have been studying, the righteousness of another has been credited to their account. It is the hero of Psalm 118, the conquering Savior, that grants to us the righteousness. And when He grants that to us, it so moves our heart 
that we recognize this in our worship, singing of his right hand and entering freely, passed through the once veiled Holy of Holies, through the work of Jesus Christ into fellowship with the Father, even as we celebrated last week at the Lord's table, because of the work of our Messiah, of our conquering hero. And thus, the evident sovereignty of the Lord is recognized by the righteous. This was a theme in Psalm 115. Again, following this pattern of thematic reprise. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, verse 1, Psalm 115, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heaven. Heavens, he does all that he pleases. And you guys remember this section, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. Kids, remind us, they have eyes but do not. What is it, kids? They have eyes, but do not. They have ears, but do not. Noses, but do not. Hands, but do not. Feel. Feet, but do not. Walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So that's on the one side of the coin, the absurdity of idolatry. But here we have the other. This is the righteousness of the Lord, or the beauty of the Lord recognized by the righteous, verse 9. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. There we have our three categories again. People, priests, and proselytes, if you will. Confessing what? Well, among the righteous, confessing that their help and their shield is in the Lord. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. Who will he bless? He will bless the house of Israel, the righteous, the people of God. He will bless the house of Aaron, those who are called to minister in his course, the priesthood. He will bless those who fear the Lord, those from other distant tribes and tongues who have confessed their sin and placed faith and count themselves now in fellowship with all that the Messiah redeems. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 115 gives us, in this even glorious and satirical contrast, the difference between, demonstrates the difference between the absurdity of idolatry-induced blindness, the absurdity of idolatry-induced blindness, to the acknowledgement of the righteous, who realize the evident sovereignty of God in salvation in nature and sing songs and worship and their lives change, and their affections change, their goals in life change accordingly. Why? Because His sovereignty, His power, His beauty, His glory, His salvation is evident. Thus, it is worthy of their time, their attention, their direction, their affections, their goals, their ambitions, their songs. The righteous, the tense of the righteous, even as Dave has reminded us recently in men's group, this is a great foundation for family worship. Psalm 118, when it says that the glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. That is, the habitations, the dwellings, the homes, the places where the righteous reside. If you listen close, if you bend your ear at particular times of the day, you can hear among the saints songs that magnify, commemorate, and acknowledge the evident sovereignty of God. Why? His steadfast love is proclaimed among those who have eyes to see, and among them the righteous worship. What inspires their worship? There's another theme. Resurrection-inspired worship continues as a theme in verses 17 through 21 of Psalm 118. 
The, our, our author says, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. Again, he says, the Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. You see, resurrection has inspired his worship. Open to me the gates of righteousness. Again, 21, I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. Salvation from what? Well, among other things, and especially salvation from death. Again, a reprise of a prior song. Moving through the Hallel set, that brings us to Psalm 116. Notice the themes. 116.1, I love the Lord. Why? Because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. Notice verse 3. The snares of death encompass me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. Kids, what is Sheol? Does anyone know? Hell. hell, it can be hell. That's correct. Or the place of the dead. Death, hell, the judgment that comes at the end of life. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. He goes on in this way in verse 8. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from stumbling. Therefore, what will he do? I will walk before the Lord in the land of the dead. No, the land of the living, verse 9. Verse 14, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. And finally, verse 18, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. When we preached through this song, we identified it as a great, or a great song illustrating the relationship between grace and vows. It is the grace that has spared us the judgment our sin deserved. The grace of God that spared us from death that actually motivates our vows, our commitment to praise the Lord. We praise God because he has resurrected us from the death of sin. We worship him in the presence of his people because he has regenerated our once dead hearts. Thus, we can join with those who, can, who sang Psalm 116 so many ages ago by saying, I will walk before the Lord. I will pay my vows. I will pay my vows in the presence of his people. Songs that recognize the evident sovereignty are a way that Yahweh's steadfast love is proclaimed. Songs of enduring themes recognized by the righteous, sung by the same, and inspired by resurrection power. This brings up our final point this morning. Yahweh's steadfast love is proclaimed in salvation. This is the vindication of the Messiah, messianic vindication, 22 through 29. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God. I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. And then that reprise at the end, the benediction, if you will, verse 29, will give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. In this portion, salvation is magnified. Yahweh's steadfast love is proclaimed in his salvation. The vindication of the Messiah, the evident triumph when against all odds and against the naysayers and the false charges, he proves himself victorious. The stone that was unrecognized by those without eyes to see, that was rejected and cast aside. Surely he can't save us. Surely nothing good can come out of Galilee, so on and so forth. This dismissive attitude to God walking in flesh among us, the incarnation, Jesus Christ. This stone that the builders rejected. Who are the builders? Those who are responsible 
for the leadership and direction of the church, the religious class, and even those who are politically responsible for the civil order of the nation, those who build in religious terms, those who build in government terms, they both rejected Jesus Christ and condemned him, an innocent man, a perfect and holy one, to an unjust, cruel death, execution, Roman style, on the cross. Was this the end? Was this the end? Was the stone broken? Was it crushed to powder? No. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Death could not keep the stone in the grave, as it will, as, uh, if you will. In fact, the truth is this, that those who have rejected the cornerstone will one day be crushed to powder by it. I was reading one commentator who said, the stone that was rejected and became the chief cornerstone will one day fall on his second coming and crush to powder like an asteroid everyone who rejected his message of salvation and his blood alone. This is messianic vindication. Vindication by subjugation of his enemies and foes in two ways, either by repentance or by final judgment, condemnation, and hell. This is the messianic vindication that underscores the power and authority of our Messiah. He is the rock in the wilderness from which water sprang forth and against, and against which if you denied its reality, you would be deter it would determine you're outside the camp and it would be an enemy. He was the stone that was prophesied in Psalm 118, the one that the builder rejected. He is the stone that was fulfilled in the glorious language of the New Testament when we see time and again even Jesus himself recognizing these verses as speaking of him. And our worship text today, Peter, the apostle, does the same. The universal foundation of all hope for the future is Jesus Christ. This was the testimony of Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, ethnic Israel. Praise him among the gods, but they can worship as they ought know. Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. That is to say, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of hope, not only for the Israel of, old, of the Old Testament, but for all nations, all peoples, for us today. Extol him, therefore, loud praises, songs of triumph, ascribe to the only one worthy. Praise the Lord, for great, again, Psalm 117, is his steadfast love toward us, and in the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. And finally, again, this command, praise the Lord. And during our last message in the Hallel set, we asked this question, do you praise the Lord Jesus because he commands you? Or do you praise the Lord Jesus because you love him? And of course, it's kind of a trick question. The answer is yes. Yes, you praise him because he commands you. He is your king. He is your sovereign. He is Messiah. He is the stone before which we reverently bow as it were. He is the foundation for salvation for anyone who's ever lived, all nations, all cultures, every tribe and tongue. But we also praise him because in his steadfast love and faithfulness, which endures forever, he saw fit to offer his own flesh and blood in his love for us, in his eternal commitment to God's holiness and satisfying the payment our sin deserved on Calvary's cruel tree. This is why we praise him, because of his steadfast love and because he is king. Messianic vindication will come and has come. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, what happened? He went through a stone. The nat nature couldn't keep him in the grave. The effects of sin in the fallen world couldn't keep him. Uh, he defied the sword. The power of the tyrant was guarded by these uh, uh, soldiers at the door of the tomb. 
He defied the power of ancient Rome in its empirical status. And finally, he broke a seal, which was a stamp of the authority of the Caesar upon that tomb. Sweet messianic vindication. Neither stone nor sword nor seal could keep, have the authority to keep the cornerstone in the grave. When he rose from the dead, he demonstrated his power over every other claim to authority. And he did this furthermore when he ascended to receive as his inheritance, as we often say, according to Daniel 7, the title deed, to every nation on the earth. Kiss the son, therefore, the scriptures also say in Psalm 2, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled by a little, just a sideways glance, a marginal word, a whisper of your reverence is worthy of hellfire because our Messiah is that worthy, that powerful, and that holy. Do not anger him. But instead, honor him. He is the stone that the builders rejected and is now the chief cornerstone, and it is him that we proclaim today, the universal foundation. Now, our Savior is worthy of a triumphal recognition. He's worthy of a victory parade upon his exploits, entering into Jerusalem where if we are found among the throng, we might grab those palm branches and lay down our cloaks and worship him upon his arrival. Well, this language came, was written prophetically far, uh, long before it was evident in Matthew 21 when Psalm 118 declared, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Bless you from the house of the Lord. Prior to that, verse 25, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. That, by the way, verse 25 is summarized by one word in the New Testament, and that word is Hosanna. What does Hosanna mean? Psalm 118, 25, save us, we pray. O Lord, we pray, give us success. That's what Hosanna means. Hosanna, 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And again, verbatim, that's what the crowds cried out on that day. Psalm 118, we mentioned in the introduction, is a processional song. It's a song that is written with a sort of movement and direction in mind. Enemies surrounded the people. God gave them victory. This victory was worthy of a worship service. Thus, the victorious king heads to the gates which, of righteousness, which opened to him because he's righteous. And then he is greeted upon his arrival with throngs praising the exploits of a holy God, crying out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Could this ultimately be fulfilled in David? No, he was a sinner. He was frail and fallen, just like you or me. But this was ultimately fulfilled, this triumphal procession in the son of David. In conclusion of this message, would you turn to me to, with me to Matthew 21, where we pick up on the fulfillment of this very text. As you recall, for most people, they didn't recognize the stone as it were arriving, the king coming in coronation, that triumphal entry of Jesus Christ our Lord, because he came in a form they didn't expect, lowly on the foal of donkey. This took place, nevertheless, the scriptures had said, and Jesus reiterates in verse 4, to fulfill, or the narrator, what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to, your daughter of Zion, to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most in the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed him 
were shouting. Kids, what were the crowd shouting? Does anyone remember? Hosanna. Shout it out. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowds with eyes to see were affirming the triumphal procession of the one spoken of in Psalm 118, the one prefigured by the glorious exploits of King David. But this, the Son of David, would, be, uh, would prove victorious over greater enemies still as he goes from this event to embrace the call to embrace the cause of redemption, the call to Calvary, indeed, the excruciating death on the cross. When he entered Jerusalem, verse 10, the whole city stirred up saying, Who is this? The crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus proceeds to demonstrate his authority as conquering king in the temple by throwing out the money changers and taking dominion over that place was supposed to be a place of worship for his father. And indeed, we recognize, according to the Trinity and God himself of him. He goes on to give a, another authoritative uh, declaration or example of his power in cursing the fig tree and what that represented. Later, his authority was challenged by the priest class of that day who uh, took issue and objection with what he said. To them, he answers with a series of parables, including the parable of two sons and the parable of the tenants. The parable of the tenants have a day of reckoning coming in which they will answer for their negligence. The son himself will come, and when they kill him, and it's found by the father, they will certainly pay. Jesus concludes this section by declaring, verse 42, Matthew 21, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 43, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits, and the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus himself echoes Psalm 118 in the same series of events that the crowds echoed Psalm 118 when they welcomed the triumphal king, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he, who and comes in the name of the Lord. This was, in history, messianic vindication. This was salvation recognized by those who had eyes to see. This was the very things prefigured in Psalm 118 coming to pass. Will it happen again? Yes, it will. There's a double reference to Psalm 118 and Matthew 21. At this chapter of Jesus' ministry, a crescendo moment indeed is reached when he comes in in his authority, and it's recognized by such. But did you notice, at this time, he has assumed a lowly, uh, a lowly exterior or a circumstance on a donkey, dressed like a commoner, so to, or, uh, relatively speaking. But this will prove to be a penultimate, if you will, crescendo. There is yet a crescendo to come. Jesus, the whole message of a redemption begins to build as Jesus rises from the dead and ascends and there's yet a crescendo on the horizon when, and sweet messianic vindication when the Lord comes a second time. And here's the question, closing application. Will you recognize and welcome him on that day, the day of the Lord? Psalm 118 says, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad. What is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord refers to his appointed time where he, all the means of his salvation he's ordained are satisfied and also an appointed time to judge those who reject his free offer of grace. 
On the day of the Lord, will you recognize him? Will you welcome him? Because that day will surely come one of two ways, at your own death or at his second coming. How will you know that you will recognize him when you come? That your eyes won't be blind to the true foundation stone. That you won't reject him and thus be crushed on that final day. Well, one answer could be, if your heart resonates with Psalm 118, if you recognize yourself in light of its truths as a sinner worthy of judgment, if you have already welcomed into your heart and soul and life the Messiah, then sweet messianic vindication, the day of the Lord has occurred in your life when you were born again. And now as the Spirit draws you and gives you sweet desire to commune with this people, you come to the house of the Lord and join with the voices of those who by grace alone have been made righteous, giving sweet songs of salvation, echoing Psalm 118, the rest of the Hallel set, and the worship songs that we sing in this place because He is worthy. These are those who will recognize Him on that day when they move from this existence to glory or on that day when He returns. But those whose hearts have not been changed, eyes have not been opened, they will not recognize Him, but will remain in their rebellion. And for them, the stone that the builders rejected will crush them on that day. There's a seriousness to Psalm 118. There's a holiness, there's a weight to it, there's a reverence. But on the same hand, there's overflowing, powerful, reassuring redemption and joy. All of the Psalms are like this. Psalm 118 is particularly lays it out with layer upon layer of glory, as far as I can tell anyways. So I pray this day, as you have heard this message preached, that you would appreciate both its weight and its steadfast love communicated, that you, if you are yet in your sin and the hearing of my voice, might turn from your sin and build your life upon the only foundation, the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, lest you be crushed one day. And for those of you that do take your stand upon Jesus Christ, that you would be encouraged with that sweet messianic vindication as attended the way of our Savior, He rules and reigns. May you be ever the more motivated not to put your trust in other things like princes and nations, but to say, take refuge in the Lord and to look forward to every moment of joining together with His people to give Him the glory and the praises He so deserves. Let's close this message in prayer. Oh, Father, I pray, as we have heard your scriptures today, that you would seal these truths upon our heart. Lord, I pray that we would appreciate the weight of your revelation in the powerful, holy scriptures, that we might be able to communicate with sober authority uh, via the Spirit's use of these means to the lost yet dying in their trespasses and sins, they must repent and turn, and that the Messiah, Lord, over death and the grave, commands them to do so. Lord, we look forward to the sweet vindication of that final day, the day when we step into glory because of Christ's work purchasing our soul upon our death or the day when you return. I pray that we would anticipate that day with a growing confidence that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And I pray that we would approach that day with a growing appreciation of the steadfast love that endures forever, that secured our entry through the gates of righteousness by giving us the righteousness of our Savior, our Sovereign and Lord. Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord.